I'd like to reminisce uh, for a second, if we can, uh, tonight, back to, back to grade school. Um, so what, what, were some of your, what were some of your absolute favorite things about grade school? Recess, for sure, right? I mean, it's like, literally still, when, I, when, when Dawson and Maddox come home from school, they define a day based on how many recesses they had, you know? Like, Dad, you'll never believe it. Today we had three recesses, you know? And I'm like, what'd you learn? And they're like, how to play kickball, you know? And I'm like, all right, fair enough. So what were some of your other favorite things about grade school? Lunch, okay. <laughs> Learning to read. That feels somewhat educated, all right? What else? Favorite things about grade school? What'd you say? Was that an art back there? And what was the resounding one from over here? Math, what? Okay. Oh, nap time. Okay. Nap, yes. So, um, and all those things are great. Recess, certainly, certainly uh, awesome. One of my favorite things about grade school, and I don't know why we ever stopped it uh, in life, it was show and tell. You guys know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. Show and tell day was, was go time, you know? There was, and especially like when you got to be the show and tell person, you know, because others would, others would kind of bring some things from their life and it was, it was, it was pleasant. But when you got to present, uh, you know, when you got to bring that, that rare artifact that you found around your house or you got to bring in your pet, how have you guys brought a pet to show and tell day ever? Okay. What, what kind of pet did you bring? A gecko. That's worth show and tell. Is it still living? No, RIP. It's all good. Um, so, <laughs> so show and tell day was awesome because uh, never once did I ever see someone show something that they weren't passionate about. And, um, you know, I joked about it. I wish like there was still kind of the same rhythm of show and tell for us. And I was thinking about it, um, especially in preparation for this evening. And I, I feel like I get to go back to to grade school a little bit tonight, and, um, and really all of us in Christ embrace that, that show and tell lifestyle. Like we literally spend our lives showing the love of Christ and telling of the love of Christ. And tonight I get the privilege of walking through uh, in a non-wedding ceremony um, the beauty of, of love. And um, I know some of you are already wondering, like, um, there's a chair up there, and uh, that's somewhat confusing. Um, and I want to explain why. I, um, I'm longing tonight that God would do such a work uh, in my own heart through this passage. Um, just e- even in studying it, the amount of conviction uh, that it's brought brought my heart has been overwhelming and and certainly that can happen standing up but tonight I just I long to change my posture so that together we could just let the word guide us um we have something to show and tell don't we and and I think the the largest premise of the show and tell mentality comes uh from what the gospel of John describes so I want to show you this okay here's the opening of the gospel of John In verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him, and with him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Beautiful opening. Now I want to turn your attention to verse 14. This is incredible. Look at this. And the word, that same word that we just read about, became flesh. So Jesus incarnated himself, left heaven, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth, and shows us very, very precisely what God is like, who God is, what God is the image of, what God bears, how God loves And so because Jesus was manifested, was incarnated, because he came, then this description of what love is uh, from 1 Corinthians 13, we just get to bask in it tonight, to bathe in it. And uh, uh, many of you got an email from me this morning that that told you the text that we were studying. Uh, If you look back on all of our staff preaching notes and stuff, uh, we we had a plan going into tonight, about 3 o'clock today, um, this spirit was just, I believe, just moving, and so I've scratched said plan, and uh, we, were, we were supposed to finish all of chapter 13 tonight, and we're just, we're not. Uh, we're only going to get through verse 8, and so um, I want to make a statement, and then we'll, then we'll launch in. All right, here's the statement I want to make as we get going. True life is found in true love. Now, the first time you hear um, true love, like you're instantly thinking about maybe what culture calls your soulmate, right? Like a significant other. In fact, uh, I told this statement to Avery. And uh, there were, Avery and Dawson were praying for me tonight before. And so I, I told her this was big on my heart tonight. And well, she was like, well, true love is like who you marry. And I'm like, yeah, not really. Um, Let me say it this way. I feel like we're all like desperately searching for life-giving things. Some of you are looking for it in adventure. Uh, some of you are, are looking for it in various uh, addictions. Some of you are looking for it in chasing a new vision or job. Um, we're trying to find life in a lot of different places. But what if all of a sudden we came to a a new understanding tonight that true life in its fullest sense, Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the what? Life to the full, right? So the true life somehow in the fullest sense that comes from Christ because God is by definition love was found in true love that could only be found in God. What if tonight we saw how much life there was in this kind of way of loving. Uh, I think most times when we've read 1 Corinthians 13, like we've just read it, them as commands, we've kind of walked through them one by one. But tonight, like I want to, I want to with you, watch the text unearth itself so much show, to, to show us how much life there is in loving like Jesus loved. Uh, in fact, um, uh, let me say this, and then we'll then we'll dive in. Like I'm I'm getting older, 
um, 36 years old. And I know that to some of you that's still young and to some of you that's archaic. Um, but I, I've been thinking about it, and the Lord just affirmed that. I've been thinking, <laughs> I, I've been thinking to myself, man, like, like I don't have that, that much time. I mean, I've watched friends of mine die at young ages. And so it instantly puts you in this frame of reference of like, okay, so man, I just, I need to live a whole lot of life then between now and whatever. And then you start thinking about like the bucket list stuff, right? You're like, okay, I need to live a whole lot of life. So tomorrow I'm going to hot air balloon ride. And then next week we'll go to the Grand Canyon. You know, and you're like trying to picture all these, all these things that you need to do. But what if all of that was found in love? What if we could experience the most amount of life in loving like Jesus? And what if it was that simple? Don't you think it would change everything? I want to propose to you that I think it would. So open your Bibles. We're not at a wedding, okay? Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 8. We saw last week that if you have a whole lot of things but you don't have love, um, Paul said in, in three different ways uh, in my rhetoric, you ain't got nothing, okay? You can speak in the tongues of languages and all kinds of um, messages. You can prophesy if you can have all knowledge and all faith. But if you don't have love in those things, you have nothing. So let's walk through these statements one at a time, okay? Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13 True life is found in true love. Here we go. Love is patient and kind. I remember last week how I asked you if you were loving. Let's just use this list as a barometer, shall we? Okay? Love is patient and kind. You want to learn about patient kind of love? Then get married. And every person that's laughing is married, and every person that's not is now scared, okay? <laughs> this past weekend, um, was overwhelmed with some things. Um, started to feel very uh, selfish. Started to feel sorry for myself. Was taking it out on uh, my wife, not in anger, not in, but just kind of in pity. And I was thinking about how many times Heidi has had to be patient and loving me because of my ignorance. To say that love is patient, it would be an understatement. But listen, how much life is there in a patient kind of love? I start thinking about, listen to this, I start thinking about if I loved Heidi as patiently as God has loved me. And to some of you, that will be overwhelmingly cliche. But if you let the weight and the conviction of that statement just sit on your shoulders for a second, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? So in other words, how patient is the love of God? He's so patient that at one sin of ours, We deserve to literally be killed in that moment. For the wages of sin is what? 
is death. And not just in the end, but I, I believe the wages of sin is death now. Why? Because it's, it's disobedience to a good, holy, righteous God who is well-deserving of glory and praise. And so any sin of ours, even immediately right now, uh, should result in, as it did sometimes in Scripture, in death. But just think on for a second. What if, what if we found that the life that is in loving patiently, as patiently as God loves his children, uh, so some of you who have kids, one of the first things to go when your kids start getting annoying is uh, your patience. I'd like to tell you that I am a very patient parent at all times, but if you know me, you know a patience, uh, I believe, is not a virtue, okay? Um, I struggle with it greatly. I'm not patient. And so getting to parent my children has only deepened my understanding of how patient God is with me. He's patient enough with us to give us time to grow and be sanctified. He's patient enough with us to give us time to find new ways, deep ways to give Him glory. He's given us this this life that we don't deserve to breathe in and to experience the fullness of Him. And yet, when I'm in a, in a bad mood, feeling sorry for myself, or just in a moment of pride, my kids can do one small, uh, little tiny thing, right? Like asking for four suckers at the bank like Maddox did over the weekend instead of one. And I instantly look at him and grow in anger like he's some, somehow a spawn of Satan, you know. Listen, I, I long to be a worshiper in deeper ways. And doesn't just this thought breed so much life? How impatient our love is and how much life there is in a patient Jesus kind of love. Yes, there are implications on your marriage in this. Yes, there's implications in our relationship. There's not a level of our love that there aren't implications. That's why I wanted to sit tonight, just so there could be moments where we could just like think on the patient love of God and allow it just to stir our hearts to worship. We deserve so much more, and instead, He is patient and gracious and merciful. So, the second um, piece that Paul says love is, he says that it's kind. This is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word shows up. Uh, it has a connotation, not just of, of wishing well, but it has, listen, it has a connotation of intention. Uh, so let's say it this way. Love is intentionally kind. What I've learned is kindness doesn't happen by accident. The kind of love that Jesus had was the kind of love that took great intention, God so much so, that he would make this whole plan of redemption only to send his son with great intention to save his children. You guys hear me talk about it all the time. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when there is a funeral procession walking out of the town. It's a widow's only son. So she's already a widow and now she's lost her son. 
And Jesus, listen, Jesus is walking into the town on the other side of the road. His disciples behind him. The funeral procession doesn't even see Jesus, the scripture says. But Jesus, in in an intentional kind of kindness, knows and sees and perceives everything that's going on, goes over and touches the buyer or the plate the body is sitting on and raises this widow's son from the dead and then goes on his way. It's this kind, please hear this, it's this kind of intentional kindness that God has pursued every single one of us in this room who is in Christ. So intentional, so loving, so merciful. There is, listen, so much life in pursuing an intentional kindness in others. I think many of us perceive that that it will just happen. But my friends, I feel like many of us are missing the joy of living in in the fear of intentionality. So Paul says, love is patient and kind. Now a list of things that love is not. Love does not envy or boast. Um, I want to keep coming back to marriage because it's um, a good mirror of my failings. Uh, I found myself recently jealous of Heidi. And um, a couple different areas. Um, uh, One, my wife is right now... uh, in great shape. She's working very, very hard um, at exercise and, and eating well. And I've confessed before, it's certainly a struggle of mine. Okay, tombstone pizza is a weakness. Um, and so I, I've like, I found myself, instead of celebrating my wife's path to um, health, I found myself in my heart just being jealous of her and uh, being jealous of her work ethic, being jealous of her um, pursuit. And the crazy thing about jealousy is, is it convinces you that there is life in it because somehow then vicariously you can, you can in your heart build up such a barrier between that person and, and the other person that you're jealous of that, that it makes you somehow like feel better about yourself. Like that's the lie of jealousy, right? That I can get jealous even of those that I, I quote unquote love. And then in my mind, I'll start thinking, well, well, she, I mean, she's in, she's in good shape because she can go to the gym. Which, like, of course I can go to the gym. You know, well, well she's, she eats well because, you know, she doesn't have lunch meetings at El Magway, right? So like, of course she can just eat well then. Listen, there is zero life, zero life in jealousy. Zero life in envy. That's why Paul makes clear, listen, love isn't that. The kind of love that is driven by envy is the kind of love that divides, not the kind of love that builds. If you took note right now, made a list of all the folks that you're jealous of. Of all the folks that you've grown in bitterness towards. Of all the people that you're 
as we'll talk about later, waiting for them to fail. Can I ask you a question? Same question I've been asking myself. Is there any life in it at all? Is there anything there? So instead, what Paul proposes is there's a different way, actually. It's, it's the kind of love that, that Jesus has loved us with. And you're like, well, but God's a jealous God. Listen, we're not talking about the jealousy and desiring glory for a God. We're talking about an envy that grows bitterness. He doesn't just talk about envy, though. He also says this. Love does not envy, and it also does not boast. Um, maybe, maybe you found yourself doing this. Have you ever believed that for others to love you, you would have to exaggerate for them to accept you? Let me ask it another way. What's the percentage of what people actually know about you? Would you say people know 80% of you? Let's talk about your closest relationships. Would, would you say they know 85% of you, 90% of you? Really, really know you? And then how much of that percentage is exaggerated or blown out of proportion because ultimately you believe in your heart that you must exaggerate for them to accept you? Come on. How many times have you walked in a room and someone's introduced you and then you instantly felt this urge to boast because you believe that in that moment, if you didn't boast, then it would not equal love. And again, I've told all of you many, many times, the two things every person is after is love and truth in that order. So we're after it, we're chasing it. And so you walk in the crowded room or you sit down with your family and there's expectations put on you that you need to be this or do this. And so instead of embracing the life-giving realm of humility, we walk into a room and project. Listen, this is another one of those moments where you just sit back and you just worship. Romans says that while we were still sinners, Christ died. God literally knows everything about us. He doesn't know 85%. He knows 100 And yet, in it all, still sent his son to die. In it all, still loves us. In it all, listen, still calls us his sons and his daughters. It, it, there is so much life in that kind of love. Not based on merit. Not based on structure. Just, just based on grace and mercy, and doesn't it right now again remind you of the beauty of God's love? We don't have to walk in and say, God, listen, uh, last week I, I got to pray with 15 people to receive Christ. God already knows that the number was one or zero. We're not loved and accepted because of what we've done. We're loved and accepted because of what His Son has done. Listen, imagine, imagine the kind of relationships, the kind of brother and sister in the body relationships where no one had to exaggerate at all, where we embrace the life-giving peace of humility. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the who? To the humble. Why? Because there's so much life in it. 
he adds to this thought on envy and arrogance. He also says at the end of verse, uh, the beginning of verse 5, he says, it is also not rude. So it's not just not uh, boasting, but it's also not arrogant, and it's not, it's not rude. Uh, so in other words, love is very, very specifically gracious so much so that it, in a deeper level almost than intentionality, it goes out of its way to pursue. Uh, we could think of the opposite. What's a word when you think of the opposite of rude? Well, like what word comes to mind? The opposite of rude being what? What's that? Sure, yeah, what else? Definitely. Like all of, all of those things that just came to mind, the opposite of rude, love gets to walk in the kind of life that it doesn't find itself being arrogant and then manifesting itself in rudeness. Now I want to hang on this next piece for a minute. Look at this. It does not insist on its own way. Paul writes in uh, Corinthians chapter 5 that the love of Christ controls us. But never does the scripture say that the love of man should control us. The problem when you start addressing these issues is some of you have heard the word love But in reality, what's happened is you have spent years of being abused. You've spent years of of hearing the right words, husband or wife, son or daughter. You spent years of hearing the right words, hey, I love you. But then all your experience was, is not the love of Christ controlling him or her, but them desiring to control you. Desiring to manipulate you. Now, I want to speak to both sides of this, both to the abuser and the abused. It's quite possible that those of you who find yourself in the abused um, situation, that that maybe you've never even recognized it as abuse. Uh, Maybe you thought that uh, maybe the way your husband was, was that was just biblical because, you know, the husband is the head of the house and he always holds that over me. He always um, seems to uh, insist on his own way, never is desiring of giving input or getting input from me. I, I guess I, I guess maybe that's that's biblical kind of love. But the problem is you, you feel completely manipulated, often deceived, just about all the time devalued. Again, we think sometimes that the only form of abuse comes in physical abuse. But my friends, I want to contend to you, it's quite possible that some of you are in marriages or in relationships or have been as a son or a daughter where you have been emotionally and spiritually abused 
through this exact process. Love does not insist on its own way. And some of you have sat under such domineering kinds of leadership or love that it's been very, very difficult to find your identity there within. And I'm just saying... On behalf of all of us, I'm so incredibly sorry and I'm praying right now that all of a sudden your eyes would be open to this reality. Maybe you've been in this thing for a long time and you you haven't reached out for help purely because you, you thought it was just the way it was supposed to be. And again, I'm just encouraging you. Listen, it is not the way a marriage is supposed to go. There is so much life in camaraderie. In fact, the the call of a husband to lead his wife is a servant's role. The only day uh, that we uh, bend the knee as husbands shouldn't be just that when we bend the knee on, on the day that we propose. It's literally every single day that we walk with our brides. It's on bent knee in a serving role. And so I hurt with you and I hurt for you and I want to provide a consistent forum for you. Maybe you find yourself as one of those who have been controlled and manipulated and ultimately abused. And I'm just saying, would you come seek out one of our pastors? We're learning and growing in how to walk with those who have been abused in that way And we would long to walk with you because there is a different kind of way to love with the full recognition that it's possible that whoever you're being abused by needs to come to that same understanding. It's quite possible that they've been so deceived in their own sin, their own self-righteousness, their own fear, that they don't even recognize it as abuse. And so to those that think that love is always insisting on your way, not just in a marriage, but in relationships, that you always have to insert your way. And if if, if it's not going how you would want it to go, then, then forget about it. Listen, I'm imploring you, listen, repentance can be yours today. I'm wondering how many of you husbands would need to go to your wife and just say, you know what, I've spent the last 10 years serving myself. I bent my knee on the day when I proposed and that was the last time. And I'm sorry. Now, I fully recognize there are marriages and sons and daughters in this room that don't even know like what's next. That's why I'm asking, listen, could, could you just take one step even after tonight of coming finding Pastor Jeff or myself, Pastor Jared, maybe a lot family leader, and allowing us to begin to walk with you, shepherd, you threw the hurt and the pain because I'm sure it has caused so much confusion of identity. Are we together? Now, the, the deeper and more difficult piece to confess and bring into the light is physical abuse because of some of the threats that you've received. But listen, the abuser can repent and the abused can be healed. That's the power of the love of Christ. Amen? That's our hope. That's our hope. So I love Paul's language. Love does not insist on its own way. Imagine a group of people that existed under that truth and reality. It's hard to imagine because it seems so foreign. And so he adds this, and and this is 
I'm going to spend a ton of time on these next two. It is not irritable or resentful. He's talking about love, right? It's not irritable or resentful. This quite possibly might be the biggest area of conviction in this room right now. The Greek word for irritable um, is better touchy. Is better like you're so incredibly ready to burst with anger. That the one wrong look, the one traffic cut off, the one fellow co-worker that says this one thing, the one kid annoyance. Listen, do you, do you find yourself there often? Do you find yourself so irritable that it is difficult to live? You know Why? It's because on the, on the antithesis of it, there is so much life, true life, found in the extension of grace. Think about seasons where you could have been irritable, where you could have been quick to lash out, quick to curse, quick to middle finger it, middle finger it quick to throw something out of your car. You know, quick to, um, to go at your wife or your husband. And instead, all of a sudden you found yourself overextending grace. It was like just yesterday you were biting the head of your kid off and for whatever reason today, they could almost do anything and you find yourself just lavishing grace. Isn't there so much more life in that? Listen, when has ever irritability like built within you this great hope for how you can live life? For me anyway, it only breeds shame because every time I'm irritable and then I lash out in whatever uh, regard, I always go back and say like, what in the world am I doing? And yet then 10 minutes later because I haven't really repented, I find myself irritable again. Anybody else? It's so frustrating Because I know and have lived in seasons where I'm extending grace and quick to forgive and quick to lavish love. And I know that in those moments, that is where true life is. I'm just tonight saying, listen, what if we enjoyed, celebrated, repented of, and then walked in the true kind of life that said, God, please make me not touchy. Listen, so much of the area of forgiveness in our relationships has been because we were very, very quick to to get angry and very, very quick to speak. Irritability. I'm wondering tonight if any of you guys just need to repent and say, man, I'm, I'm just, I know there's so much more life out there that's not there, but I just, how, Mark, how do I find myself not irritable? And that's what I'm trying to help you understand tonight. You find yourself a worshiper at so many deep levels. So he says, not just, uh, it's not irritable. He also says resentful. And for those of you that grew up with the NIV, what's uh, what's the word resentful? Come on. Come on, come on. Come on, some good New International Versioners. Not resentful, but keeps no... Record of wrongs, right? Come on, you've been to a wedding or 2,500 that have said this. 
So we're great at keeping no record of wrongs, right? Phenomenal at it. Some of you have majored in college in keeping no record of wrongs. Why is it, why is it that we hold on to stuff so tightly? Why is it that we do to others what the gospel doesn't even do to them? You understand that? Like, why do we hold these grudges over people because they've sinned against us? And yet in Christ, the scripture says that their sin is not just washed clean, but is as far as the east is from the west. It's as if we, we long to step in the seat, sit in the seat of God, and say, God, I know you said that they should be forgiven, but I say they shouldn't be. Because it hurt. And because it, it, it caused me years of pain. I've said it a million times. I pray, I say it a million more. Is there any life in a lack of forgiveness? Have you ever held up bitterness in your heart and you thought, this is a great way to live? If I could just hold some more grudges, that's where true, true life is found. No, you've never felt that way. I've never felt that way. Every grudge, every bitterness, every record of wrongs. Again, in marriage, come on. Things start getting dicey, you can tell in a marriage, right? Because all of a sudden, like, you're pulling out stuff from like four years ago. Oh, yeah, you don't like my cake? Well, you know what? You know, and it's over the stupidest things, right? All of a sudden, you make some, some comment about something silly, and then pretty soon, you're talking about some wrong that your husband or wife did literally like ages ago. What? I thought we buried that. Oh, no, I'm still angry about that. What? Still angry? Like, how, how does that even work? How is that even possible? So again, to the abused, you're like, Mark, but if I don't keep a record of wrongs, then, then Mark, I, I'm going to go back to the abusive situation. Hold on a second. Love is not sitting in the place of the Lord in judgment. That's what love is. Uh, in the scripture, there is no place that says forgive and forget, okay? I know that some of you grew up with that kind of mentality and you thought it was in Romans chapter 18. Romans 18 doesn't exist, okay? Sometimes forgiveness is remembering. And so as the abused, you can fully forgive and yet not put yourself in subjection to that kind of abuse again. Does that make sense? So you in your heart can long for forgiveness and growth and healing for the one who abused you, who manipulated you, who cheated on you. You can get to that place where you want forgiveness and healing. You want overwhelming stuff for them. In fact, you're wishing them well. And yet, not put yourself potentially in subjection again to that kind of maybe habitual sin pattern or that abuse, whatever the case may be. Does that make sense? 
Because again, some people have taken this passage and they've read it just to say, well, I guess love keeps no record of wrong, so I just need to wipe the slate clean and here you go, like go ahead and take advantage of me again. No. That is not the scripture. The beauty of love is we can in our heart wish them well and leave the saving and the sanctifying to the Lord. Come on. I know some of you, because I have this conversation all the time, uh, in particular with, uh, with folks who are desiring to date a non-believer. And all of a sudden, they, they put themselves in the saving and the sanctifying role. Like, but Mark, maybe they'll change. Yeah, well, let's leave that to the Lord. You don't need to hang in a relationship where you're unequally yoked in the hope that somehow you'll have influence. God has much greater influence than you. Listen, could you imagine the life that kept no record of wrongs? Because right now, my guess is, in your back pocket, you got like a scroll. And even, listen, even just the people recently that have chapped you, and you've been cold-shouldering, and you've, you've been thinking that forgiveness depends on them. Well, they need to say they're sorry. They need to ask forgiveness. Listen, you may never get sorries from the people that have wronged you. And so what do we do? We embrace the heart of the Christ that on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is so much life in that statement that Stephen said the exact same thing before he was stoned. He didn't say it just to repeat it or in some sort of mantra. He said it because there's life in it. Forgive them. Forgive them. I want to die forgiving people. That's what Jesus did. That's what Stephen did. That's what you and I get the chance to live in. We get to live forgiving people. Not because we're capable, but because he has forgiven us and has afforded us the opportunity to do the same because there is so much life in keeping no record of wrongs. Come on, my brothers and sisters. How much health would there be in the body of Christ if we were way, way, way quicker to forgive? I mean, we would be experiencing fruit in relationships that we've never experienced because we're so quick to hold the grudge, turn the back, and then hope that time heals. Listen, we don't need time. Christ heals. Christ heals. Does Christ use time? For sure. But if time is the agent of healing, my friends, then that's superseding what Christ has done. So love... Man, look at this. It's not irritable or resentful in the NIV years, keeping record of wrongs. Verse 6, if you're not heavied by all this yet, verse 6. Love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Marriage again. When I get, um, when I get frustrated, when I get angry, I can't wait. This is in all vulnerability. I can't wait to catch Heidi do something wrong. How ugly is that? 
Why? Because, again, in it, I think that there's going to be some sort of life to say that she did something wrong versus me. And literally, audacious enough that I'm looking for the smallest thing, right? And so she does the smallest thing, whatever that is. And then all of a sudden, literally in my heart, I am like applauding the wrongdoing. Gotcha. You see, I told you, I, t- I told you, Heidi, you were messed up. I mean, how ridiculous is that? There's no life there. Rejoicing at wrongdoing. Hoping that people would slip up. Listen, how grotesque is this? Hoping our brothers and sisters would slip up so then we would feel better about our sin? I've literally heard in the last month, my guess is I'm going to try to put a non-exaggerating number on this. I'm going to say like like 10 times, okay? There's been a, a lot of failings publicly around. And I've literally heard people say things like, yeah, you know what? They kind of, they got what was coming to them. Or, or things like, yeah, you know what? I guess, I guess that just proves their hypocrisy. And they say it with a smile. I pray that in this body, there is never rejoicing in wrongdoing, but grieves it. Grieves it not to the point of hating one another, grieves it to the point in loving one another. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the beauty of not rejoicing in wrongdoing. When you don't rejoice and you grieve, then you long for one another's holiness. So much so that you're willing to love one another enough to say the difficult things in love, grace, and truth, even though it's tough to say. doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. But the scripture says it rejoices with the truth. I love this. Now he turns now from the things that love is and again back to the things that love is. It rejoices with the truth. That's what love does. And listen, I, I can't help even right now but be overwhelmed at the fact that God has given us this scripture to be such a means of life and of joy. Why? Because this is truth. It's truth. It's not cultural relativism. It's not maybes. It's not fairy tale. It's not myth. We get to literally rejoice in the truth day after day after day. And you know what? Live in it because right here is where true love is as we watch God's love for us unfold. True life is found in true love and true love finds itself rejoicing with the truth. Verse 7, look at this. Love bears all things. Four statements of all, not some. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There wasn't one thing that Christ left undone. God, in God's plan for sending Jesus, I mean... Maybe he could have stopped the Christ short like Abraham and Isaac. If you're not familiar with the story, Abraham puts his son on the altar. God stops him even though he had called him to make sacrifice of his son. God stops Abraham. He doesn't go all the way along with the sacrifice to do what? I believe to only then, hundreds and hundreds of years later, go all the way with his son. God doesn't stop his own hand 
His son is killed, enduring all things. Bearing with it has this implication of trust. In other words, love, true love, in the sense of coming from God, it leaves no gap or no room for error, for something to get in between. It bears all things, beautiful, beautiful language, hopes all things, endures all things. It leaves no gaps. And then finally, in verse 8, love never ends. Now, we were supposed to keep going. I had literally like, it's a true story, I had 20 more slides at this point for tonight, okay? But all of a sudden, uh, the truth that I desired, that I felt like the Lord had put in my heart to share, uh, I couldn't run from it. Because for me, I look at this list, and and go and put up the next slide. This this shows you the difference between uh, the things that love is and the things that love isn't. When I look at this list, like, how many of you are like, all right, so go time. I'm going to leave here tonight. I'm going to love like that. You know? You're like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life existing in the life that this kind of love has for me. You kidding? Like, I look at that list. And I'm like, how in the world can I even begin to love like this? Like, like where's the starting point? Where's, where's even the beginning of all this? Next slide. That's why I want to ask it this way. Okay, look at this. Why do we struggle to love like this? I mean, there's so much more life in every single one of those facets. There's more life in not resenting others. There, there's more life in not being arrogant. There, there's more life in not being controlled by man, but being controlled by the love. There is so much more life in all of those things. Why do we struggle with it so much? Because again, we're all chasing to live deeper, more fulfilled life. Though I think we could go many directions with this, I want to focus on one. Next slide. I think we struggle because of fear. And, and you're like, Mark, well, well, what do you mean? Are you saying that I'm, I'm fearful of this or fearful of that? No, let me explain. When I was a youth pastor, there was a gentleman who I had met who was addicted to meth. It started coming around the church. I built a relationship with him. And um, I loved hard. Man, I, I welcomed this dude into my life. Uh, he was in my home. Um, he had confessed Christ. I was spending absurd amounts of time with him, uh, giving resources trusting along the way, I mean, just just giving and giving and giving. And I told him from the beginning, I was like, look, brother, I understand how powerful meth is. I know it's, I know it's, I know it's tough. I know it's a big drug. Listen, if you ever go back, just be honest with me, and and we'll walk through that together. Like, Christ is bigger than meth. We can, I mean, I was all in. 
to the place that I was playing Savior. And so what happened was, um, one day, uh, he lies to me and I catch him in it. And I extend grace and then the next day he lies again. And then all of a sudden he's back in full-fledged drug addiction and not being honest about it, not giving me the chance to walk with him through it. And I find myself at the end, literally, of my rope with every facet of love. And in my heart, believe that I never, ever want to love like that again. Because I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to get burned. I don't want to love so much to then only have someone turn their back on me. Or literally even hate me. Or, or even love so much to then be betrayed to the point where they're like saying bad things about me. How could they say bad things about me? Like I literally gave them my whole life. Why do we struggle to love like this? Because around this room there is a ton of fear. Because you have been burned. There's hurts. There's pains. You find yourself quick to forgive only to be quick to be betrayed. Uh, you find yourself a quick to endure only to find the opposite side of a relationship not persevering. But listen, this whole journey for me now all of a sudden is making sense because I believe the crux of the issue is ultimately not a fear of being burned. Next slide. It's a fear of this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We've been talking about this, and all of a sudden my eyes open yet again. The core issue of struggling to love like Jesus is that ultimately I fear dying to my flesh. Why? Because my flesh is more comfortable. Because it's easier to keep a record of wrongs. Because it's easier to be resentful. Because in those little nuances of my sinfulness, it is so much easier to build up my self-esteem instead of embracing the humility where there is so much more life in. I fear this. Some of you fear this. Okay. So listen, please hear this. It's crazy. I got to this point, and then all of a sudden, the catalog of the scriptures started to reel, and then God did something crazy. He did something crazy. Do you remember last week where we said love came from? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Okay, look at this. We love because what? He first loved us. So what we said last week is that we love only in response to how he has loved us. Our love then is an act of worship. Worship is a response. So we get the opportunity to love one another because of his love. Do you know what verses come before this in 1 John 4? Can I show you please? Look at this. Crazy. Look at this. First of all, in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I want to make sure everyone understands this truth right now. This is salvation. 
You are born a sinner, separated from God, and what the scripture makes clear in so many different facets, you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, not a teacher, not a prophet, not, not some, somebody who, who came and did some nice miracles, but that he's literally the sacrificial Son of God, now risen and reigning Lord, seated at the right hand of God the Father. You confess that. What does the promise say? God abides in what? In him and he in God. That's a good promise, Amen. So that's where verse 15 starts. Are you ready for verse 16? Check this out. Verse 16. So we have come then to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Right? Come on. We've come to know and believe it then. Why? Because God's abiding in us and I'm abiding in God. There's an abiding that happens. And so, yes, in spite of all my failings and failures, I have, you have come to know God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. All of this is great. But do you know what verse 17 says? My friends, look at this. Crazy, crazy stuff here. By this is love perfected with us. Hello, hold on a second. Because you look at that list of things in 1 Corinthians 13, and what do you think? This is perfect love. That whole list is a perfect kind of way to love. So then, after God abiding in us and us abiding in God, he says, by this is love perfected with us. So that, for the reason of, we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. In other words... There is a boldness that comes from embracing the love of God, from being in God, and from God being in us. But then the verse that sits right before we love because he first loved us. Are you ready? There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. The same word, listen, the same word for cast here is the same word that the Gospels use to describe an exorcism. That in the same way that Jesus took demons out of, out of, Men and women and literally casted them out is the same word that's used here. But perfect love casts out what? For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but of power, love, and of sound mind. I look at that list and all of a sudden I say, why am I struggling to embrace this? I'm struggling because I am so fearful. Fearful of dying in my flesh, fearful of being burnt, fearful of not being able to live up. Fear, fear, fear. But is it possible that you and I have learned to say things and even then exist in them under the premise of fear while not embracing the truth that we have in Christ? Now, I believe that there's a level of confidence that this means about the return of Jesus. 
When love is in all of its fullness perfected, then, oh my goodness, perfect love will cast out fear. But I believe also, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, my friends, we get an opportunity here and now in this life to exist as Jesus said. Why do you worry? Don't be anxious about anything, but by everything, in prayer and petition, offer your request to God, and on and on and on. What if all of a sudden we really believe that Jesus had the capability of casting out our fear because of his perfect love? And then, listen, and then what if we found ourselves releasing the record of wrongs because it provided no life? then what if all of a sudden we saw ourselves lavishing and extending and overwhelming grace upon grace upon grace? Why? Because all fear is gone. I stood next to my grandfather at the end of every uh, church service from very, very young to seven years old, and then when we would come back to visit. And I grabbed the hand of my very burly farming grandfather, And at the end of every single worship gathering, we would sing the same song. Some of you have heard it before. Because he lives, have you heard of it? Here's how the song goes. Because he lives, anyone know the next line? What? I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, what's the next line? All fear is gone. So, I mean, I, I sang this out to the top of my lungs and my grandmother standing next to me singing way off tune. And I held their hands and I sang it out, man. Because he lives, all fear is gone. But I'm serious. I believe it right now more in my life than ever before. God cast out fear so that we could love one another, so that we could love our spouse, so that we could love our kids, so that we could love this community. God, cast out fear. God, we've been burnt. We've been hurt. We've been misaligned. We've taken some battle wounds. We're scarred. But God, your perfect love is enough to cast out fear. So listen, my brothers and sisters, we can come to the table then. The table of love, grace, and mercy. And plead during this whole time of response. For God to do such a work in our heart to believe it to be true. And so as we celebrate the broken body of Christ, taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the cup, as you come up here to remember as a believer what Christ has done, may you know that because he lives, all fear is gone and we get to spend the rest of our life loving like Jesus being forgiven when we fall short but pursuing holiness for his glory and namesake so my brothers and sisters come to the table there's no fear in approaching it it's an invitation for all who will confess let's respond in the freedom of Christ